Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. While cities like Hartford and New Haven have long considered themselves sanctuary cities, there's no clear definition of what the term actually means. What we do know is that after the killing of a young woman in San Francisco earlier this year by a Mexican man in the country illegally, the policies came under fire at the national level. Here's Republican Senator and presidential candidate Ted Cruz. Mr. President, the American people have demanded for years that the federal government faithfully enforce our nation's immigration laws. Americans are tired of seeing their laws flouted and their communities plagued by the horrible crime that typically accompanies illegal immigration. Legislation that would have punished municipalities that don't cooperate with federal immigration policies was blocked in the Senate, but this entire episode shifted the focus of the immigration debate as we just heard. Today, where we live, Sanctuary Cities Explained. Join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Again, our phone number is 860-275-7266. Comment on our website, wmpr.org slash where we live. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. In just a moment, we'll be joined by a guest from Yale University, but I want to bring in two guests joining us by phone today. Cedar Atanasio is an immigration and politics writer for the Latin Times. He joins us from Los Angeles, California uh, today. And Cedar, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me, John. Also with us is Jessica Vaughn, who's director of policy studies at the Center for Immigration Studies in Washington, D.C. Thank you, Jessica. Good morning. First of all, I'd like to start with a definition, and I'll start with you, Cedar. What exactly is a sanctuary city? Well, as you said in the intro, um, lawmakers are finding sanctuary cities really hard to define. I think it's fair for the sake of this discussion just to say that it's any jurisdiction that has a law or policy that prevents or inhibits employees, especially police officers, from cooperating with federal immigration efforts or investigating federal immigration law violations. And, and what is the rationale behind these decisions by municipalities largely? Obviously, every community that you, that you cover and that you look at, Cedar, is different. But give us the broad view of what the rationale is behind cities that decide to enact policies like these. Well, on one hand, there's an effort to protect the cities from committing civil rights violations. So a few cities have been sued in the past for complying with um, immigration detainer requests which is holding an immigrant in jail longer than they uh, are supposed to. Um, and they've gotten in trouble and gotten sued for that. So there's, an, there's a movement to kind of protect the cities on a legal front. And then there's also a desire by some local police officials to maintain trust with the immigrant community and sort of ensure to them that if they come to the police, they won't be getting uh, deported, uh, you know, if they report a crime that's happening to them or one of their neighbors. 
And this was at the heart of what New Haven decided to do some years ago around sanctuary cities. We'll be talking about sanctuary cities at the local level in just a moment. The immigration detainer requests that you mentioned a moment ago, Cedar, uh, that was at the heart of the legislation that uh, got through the House that stalled then in the Senate. But that's just one piece of this overall picture, right? The, the, that's only one way in which local law enforcement may choose not to cooperate with federal immigration officials. Exactly. Um, I think Jessica might be able to tell you a little bit more about how ICE asks for uh, data from, from local officials. There's also the issue of, of whether or not a local law enforcement official is going to ask an immigrant, uh, you know, if they're in the country illegally or something like that. So there are different levels of non-cooperation that could be described as a sanctuary city policy. Jessica Vaughn, why don't you flesh this out for us? Maybe give us a, a sense of what these policies mean from where you stand. Sure. The basic goal of sanctuary policies is to obstruct immigration enforcement. and In other words, to, to erect obstacles to ICE, uh, the, the federal immigration agency, from t- being able to take custody of people who are in the country illegally. And as a practical matter... Right now, ICE is trying to take custody almost exclusively of illegal aliens who have been arrested and convicted of crimes in our communities. So it's especially troubling when the sanctuary policies are um, put in place to block cooperation between local law enforcement agencies and federal law enforcement agencies. I mean, it's one thing to say we want to be a welcoming community. Few people would disagree with that. But it's quite another to have policies that, you know, that, that prevent ICE from taking custody of criminal aliens. And that's where the detainers come in. That's a lawful instrument that Congress created for ICE to ask a local law enforcement agency and, and inform them that they are going to pursue deportation on an illegal alien or some other deportable alien who's been arrested for something and is already in local custody. And when politicians come in and say, no, Sheriff, you cannot you know, talk to ICE about who is in your jail that you've discovered is here illegally, and you cannot turn people over to ICE that ICE wants to deport, that means illegal aliens who are committing crimes, who are a small segment of the entire illegal immigrant population, get released back into our communities and have the opportunity to reoffend. And that's exactly what we saw happen in the Kate Steinle case in California. And, and that's happened many other times all over the place. So there, the, the issue here is that sanctuary policies have a, 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 an impact on public safety because Illegal alien criminals get released instead of deported. How, how, yeah, how, how big an impact does it have on public safety, though? You say it's a very small segment, and I think it's, it's, that's something on which most people agree. We're not talking about a very large number of people who, who go on to commit crimes, but, but how, how much actual criminal activity are we talking about, Jessica? Well, uh, in, an, in a, about one year period uh, that I studied, um, about 10,000 criminals that ICE was trying to deport were released as a result of local sanctuary policies. So, um, and, and these 
are concentrated in those places that have the sanctuary policies, obviously. So it's more of a problem in places like California and potentially Connecticut, which also has a statewide non-cooperation policy. So it's, you know, it, all it takes is, you know, a few cases of people causing mayhem in communities to, to be a real problem. And, and, you know, if you're a family in which someone has been harmed by one of these individuals who was released instead of removed, that's a big deal. I mean, any situation like this is one too many. So, um, but, but it is significant in certain communities. I would say places like San Francisco, Santa Clara County, Chicago, New York, Connecticut, um, where there are large populations of illegal aliens and therefore more in the community who are committing crimes. Uh, Cedar, do you have a quick response? Well, <laughs> you know, it's, it's funny that Jessica mentions these areas with large um, populations of immigrants and undocumented immigrants because really – when you when you erode trust with law enforcement, they're the ones who can who can become uh, victims of crime more easily. I mean, when when these populations are living in the shadows and they're at the margins and they can't call nine one one, that's when they you know and their neighbors become targets as well. And that's kind of the rationale behind it's some of these things. It's important to understand that victims and witnesses also- of crimes are never targets for immigration enforcement, and that's always been the case and is made clear so and and people who are illegal immigrants don't want to live among criminals any more than anyone else so there there really is no evidence the situation, that cooperation yeah, the situation suppresses crime reporting and, and, and i'm going to ask you and jessica hang on for one second and cedar i'll let you finish your thought sure and, and jessica definitely has a point um just to give you an example of how this plays out uh you can have, you know, two people arrested in a domestic violence dispute, which is common, right? The police don't know who the, who's the aggressor um, and who's the victim. They get brought in, and it's possible, depending on the administration you have and the immigration priorities that are set, that someone who is a victim of domestic violence who is arrested and brought in um, can end up getting deported because they've been arrested and they're immigration status has been revealed. So, you know, those things are possible, and it's something that I think cities want to look out for, you know, thinking about the long term, because the current, you know, the current policy of focusing on deporting criminals is is sort of transient, and that can change with administration. I, I want to let our listeners know that we're talking today about sanctuary city policies in Connecticut and across the U.S., with Cedar Atanasio, who's an immigration and politics writer for the Latin Times. He's based in L.A. Uh, Jessica Vaughn joins us. She's director of policy studies at the Center for Immigration Studies in Washington, D.C. In just a moment, we'll get to some of your phone calls at 860-275-7266. I want to bring in Michael Wishney, who's William O. Douglas, clinical professor of law and founder of the Worker and Immigrant Rights Advocacy Clinic at Yale Law School. He joins us from a studio at Yale today. Michael, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. I I asked our other two guests to essentially describe what sanctuary cities mean to them. You've heard some of the conversations so far. What are the key threads, the real issues that you think we need to focus on here today? Well, I think the the real issue is that uh, uh, we have a federal immigration set of laws and policies that date back to the Cold War era that have not been 
meaningfully updated to take account of uh, our contemporary economic needs, our demographics, our national security needs, and so forth, in part because the same people who have opposed these state and local measures have opposed meaningful federal reform. So in the face of federal kind of uh, log jams in Congress, state, local, county, municipal governments have had no choice but to try to adapt their schools, their police departments, their libraries, their um, other local public systems to the reality of millions and millions of mixed households uh, all over the country that include uh, U.S. citizens, immigrants of various statuses, and people without status. And in that process of um, state and local adaptation of state and local systems, many, many uh, communities around the country have come to the conclusion that the welfare and safety needs of all residents of those communities are best served by a range of policies that I think those communities themselves tend not to describe as sanctuary because, of course, no local government can actually provide legal sanctuary in the sense of, of uh, immunity from uh, from removal or deportation. And I think what upsets people in Washington uh, who have opposed federal immigration reform is when one community after another concludes that, for instance, public safety needs are better served by police department policies that encourage the cooperation of victims and witnesses, um, even if that means uh, that the first phone call is not to the federal immigration authorities. That I think that outrages people uh, who then tend to you know, fall back on scapegoats. And um, so I think it's quite interesting that communities uh, around the country have come to similar conclusions. Now, some of these policies have been challenged as unlawful, but the only ones that have been held unlawful are the exclusionary policies in places like Arizona uh, and Pennsylvania, where local communities have tried to target local immigrants uh, through their police departments or their housing enforcement code agencies and so forth. And those communities have repeatedly been held by the courts to have violated federal or state law, whereas cities from Houston to New York to Hartford and New Haven and some of the others mentioned that have adopted integrationist policies, uh, not one of those has been held unlawful um, by, by any court. So I think until the federal you know, rules are worked out in a 21st century kind of immigration approach, we're going to continue to see experimentation at the local level. But even if those federal rules are worked out, and I don't think any of us in the current political climate in Washington are holding our breath for that to happen, um, isn't this an issue, honestly, Michael, that might be better handled by a patchwork of local laws? I mean, you have local community standards. You have very different mixes of populations in places, uh, different attitudes toward people who are here uh, undocumented. Is is there a case to be made that federal policy doesn't really necessarily take care of all the issues that are being worked out at the local level? Oh, certainly. And, you know, throughout our nation's history, um, there's been a recognition that some issues uh, like policing and education, a lot of local public welfare issues are best addressed at the local level. Uh, it's just notable to me that uh, the policies in particular, we're talking about sort of police policies, you know, they began, uh, Houston was the first city to adopt a, a police department policy that limited uh, its communication of information, civil information to immigration authorities. Uh, and I was curious about that. I mean, this is Senator Cruz's own constituents um, and a very large, big city police department in a very red state. Uh, so I went down and I spoke to the chief of police who had implemented it and a number of the mid-level officers. And I said, well, you know, 
know, why did Houston decide before any other jurisdiction that its public safety needs were advanced um, by limiting police cooperation? And they told a story that was a Texas story of community policing Texas style and the way their department functioned and operated. And that led Houston to actually be the first to move in this direction. Others, of course, have followed on and, and adapted in different ways. But I think there will always be a role, for, of course, for local police departments, school systems, libraries, hospitals to um, adapt their practices to best serve the needs of the entire community in which they're located and which they serve. Jessica Vaughn, is is there a point to be made about that, that a a big city, uh, a Texas city like Houston, takes on an issue in a very specific way that meets their needs? And essentially the police department is saying this is better for us in terms of controlling public safety. Well, Houston is a really interesting case because their sanctuary policies were revisited after one of their police officers was shot and killed by an illegal alien who, um, you know, was at large in part because of those sanctuary policies. And they, you know, the the, the city police uh, have some policies in place, but the county in which Houston is located is Harris County, and it has uh, the highest level of cooperative programs with ICE. In fact, they have one called a 287G program in which the uh, county pays to have this program where local jail officers, in effect, have been um, deputized as immigration agents. And so that they work very closely with ICE and the local county sheriff's deputies have the authority to launch deportation procedures against inmates that they find in their jail who are deportable. So, uh, you know, I, I, I think that's an interesting thing. It, it's easy for the city of Houston to call itself a sanctuary when the Harris County Jail is essentially has the authority to enforce immigration laws. So, you know, they kind of want it both ways and, and find that it's worked out well for them for public safety to be able to use the um, the, the jails as kind of the, the the point at which criminal aliens are identified and expeditiously removed. So, you know, the, I wouldn't call Houston a sanctuary, really, because they are fully cooperative with ICE, and, and there has been no impact on community policing. They don't have, you know, I, I mean, the, the data very clearly show that when you have a jurisdiction like the Harris County Sheriff's Office that cooperates closely with ICE, there is no effect on trust between immigrants and um, police or other law enforcement, that, you know, you don't see crime reporting decline. There have Mm -hmm. been numerous studies that show this um, very clearly. So, you know, the way to improve uh, trust between the community and police is, is to enforce the law predictably and not to suspend enforcement of laws. But, you know, they have things like anonymous tip lines and um, officers who speak the language of the community uh, and uh, task forces that go out and speak to leaders within the community to make sure that everyone understands um, how they go about enforcing Mm. the law and why Uh, they do cooperate with ICE. Because as I said, nobody wants to live around people who are causing mayhem in the community, especially if they're here illegally. Sita, do you want to jump in? I I think Jessica makes a good point that it doesn't have to be one way or the other. Um, I I recently spoke with the police department in Santa Fe, New Mexico, where I'm from, and they have one of the country's 
most sort of stringent sanctuary policies. It's a very pro-immigrant community. It's a Hispanic community. And, and they said, look, we don't need to cooperate with ICE when we don't want to, because if we have a criminal in our community that we want deported, we can contact them. I mean, there's nothing, there's nothing stopping them when they've got a violent criminal from contacting ICE and, and asking that that person be deported. Um, I think what, what you run into at the national level with this Kate Steinle case is a little bit of a dilemma, because the man who you know, allegedly fired this gun and, and killed a woman in San Francisco wasn't a violent criminal. And in a place like Santa Fe, because even though he'd been deported multiple times and been convicted of a bunch of drug felonies, they would have looked at him as a drug addict and a vagrant and maybe not really a top priority uh, for running him out of town. Uh, Texas style, as, as Michael is talking about. I, I want to get to some phone calls at 860-275-7266. And Liz is calling from Plainville. Hello, Liz. Go ahead. You're on where we live. Hi. Um, uh, I'm just calling because uh, I'm actually originally from California. I'm originally from the Bay Area. Um, but um, I, I lived in a sanctuary city for a time. And then I moved with my parents um, into an area that was not a sanctuary city. And I've actually seen it firsthand where um, a woman, a neighbor of ours, was uh, she had a horrible domestic situation with her husband, who was a citizen. She did not have papers. It was complicated. And in the end, she was arrested. So was he. But she wound up being deported, um, even though it was a terrible domestic situation. There were children involved. And. You know, there were a lot of things that needed to be squared away before, but as soon as she was clear to the charges, she was pretty much sent directly to ICE. And so I've seen families literally torn apart over, you know, whether a sanctuary, whether a place is a sanctuary city or if it's not, because I firmly believe if this had happened, say, in the barrier, say, in Santa Clara County, where there is a sanctuary policy, um, she would not have been deported. So it's something that, you know, I, I know it's complicated. But, I mean, I do think there are a number of cases that, you know, just because of where it happened and how it happened, you do get a lot of people who were essentially victims, mm. you know, sent away because just because of where it happened. And, and Liz, thank you so much for the phone call. And Michael Wishney, very quickly, and that's, that's the fear that you were talking about. Uh, right, and I think that's actually the result that is sought in fact, by those who defend our current immigration laws and resist these sorts of local policies. Our current immigration laws are inhumane, they're morally bankrupt, they don't serve our economy, our national security needs, and they are going to change. There, there's no question that they're going to change uh, to adapt to the needs of the 21st century. But there are those, including Senator Cruz and others in Washington, who would like to wring as much misery out of the existing laws we have and destroy as many families as we have. And that's uh, a very compelling example uh, of exactly what happens under our current laws um, and why many police departments and many community leaders uh, stand together in saying in this brief period of time between today and when we actually achieve the kinds of reforms that are inevitably coming, how are we going to behave as a society and a community? I don't think we should be behaving uh, as occurred in the story we just heard. We're talking with Michael Wishney from Yale Law School. He joins us from Yale University today. I want to thank our guest, Cedar Atanasio from Latin Times in L.A. and Jessica Vaughn from the Center for Immigration Studies in Washington, D.C. We're going to turn to some of these stories as they happen at the local level, sanctuary cities like Hartford and New Haven. We'll welcome some more of your phone calls as well at 860-275-7266. This is where we live. Mm-hmm.
This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. Today we're talking about sanctuary city policies here in Connecticut and around the U.S. We'll get to some more of your phone calls at 860-275-7266 in a moment. You can also tweet us at Where We Live. We're joined by Michael Wishney, who's the William O. Douglas Clinical Professor of Law and founder of the Worker and Immigrant Rights Advocacy Clinic at Yale Law School. He joins us from a studio at Yale today. We're also joined now by Ana Maria Rivera, who's Director of Advocacy and Program Development at the Junta for Progressive Action in New Haven. And uh, I want to welcome you to the program. Ana Maria, thanks for being here on Where We Live. Thank you so much for having me, John. So first of all, maybe you can describe sanctuary cities here in Connecticut. We've mentioned New Haven and Hartford, and maybe we can quickly go through the policies that some of our largest cities have that might uh, designate them as sanctuaries. Sure. Uh, So I've been hearing the discussion, and it's really interesting because it depends on who you ask what the definition of a sanctuary city would be. But for me and for the organization that I represent, uh, we see a a sanctuary city as a city that recognizes the humanity of all people, regardless of their immigration status. It's a city that will actively look for laws and policies that are going to allow undocumented people to come out of the shadows and live a dignified life. Um, And New Haven has been considered a sanctuary city or should I say, a, a city of model, really, for, for some time now. Um, and this has been the result of some tremendous organizing and community actions that have taken place over the last couple of years, like from groups like Junta and Unidad Latina en Acción and partnerships with the Yale Law School. Um, and I see it as a, you know, city governments face an important choice when it comes to allocating resources to the community. Uh, and the city of New Haven, I think, uh, started some of that in 2006 when they passed a police general order um, that actually dictated that police should not be in the business of, of asking people for their immigration status. Uh, so that's one of the, f- the first things that happened uh, quite a few years ago. Um, and then another sort of controversial national thing that happened in the city of New Haven was the passage of the Elm City ID card, which was the first municipal ID in the nation that allowed folks, whether or not they had um, immigration status to obtain a documentation that said, you know, you are a member of this community, you are a member of the city. Um, So those were uh, two pretty big things that the city of New Haven um, accomplished several years ago, and and the trend has continued. And I'm very proud to live in a city like New Haven that has continued that trend. One thing that we were looking for in in the wake of that 2007 policy where the municipal ID cards were issued is some sort of documentation as to how many people actually have taken part in that program. Do you have any sense, Anna Marie, of how many people have those cards right now? I, I don't have the number at the top of my head, uh, and maybe Mike uh, does, because uh, he was here when that happened. I know in the beginning there was a, quite a big influx of people getting the card, and that has sort of um, trickled down a little bit. Uh, but it's still, I think, it's still a, a, a big program and a program that has sort of allow people to feel a sense of belonging. And I know that right now the city is working to better the ID card. Initially, the ID card was supposed to work as an, not only an identification, but also allowing folks to access a bank account, to open a debit card. Uh, so I know they're actively working into making sure that the ID card becomes more usable so that most, more folks will get it. Yeah, Michael, we, we uh, for quite some time, we're trying to find out information from the city of New Haven about who was getting these cards, uh, how these cards were being used, whether or not the program could be deemed successful. It's been a little hard to get some of those numbers. Can you tell us anything about about how widely the ID cards have been used in, in New Haven? Well, I don't have uh, data that the city of New Haven lacks itself, so I, I have to defer to their own uh, data. And, um, and if they say they don't have it, uh, unfortunately, I don't either. My understanding from the city is that the total number of cards is around 10,000. 
that have been issued. I'm not sure that that's uh, a precise figure. Um, the only uh, study I'm aware of uh, was actually done by several graduate students in the political science and anthropology departments at Yale University a few years ago. Um, and they uh, looked at how the card had been used primarily in a sort of a tertiary area, third priority area, uh, which was in commercial transactions. As Ana Maria said, the motivating uh, purpose of the program was, was public safety um, and uh, a commitment to all members of our community while secondarily trying to facilitate daily transactions like banking. Um, so anyhow, these graduate students did a very rigorous study. They published the results in some in journals uh, in journal that um, found that the um, municipal-like D-card was pretty widely accepted uh, in commercial transactions where uh, someone might ask for ID if you were, for instance, writing a check or using a credit card, you know, the situations where you have to show an ID. But uh, unfortunately, there have not been, to my knowledge, any rigorous studies t um, on the public safety um, or banking effects of the card. Um, I will say that one of the um, obstacles for that, and uh, one reason why I think the statements by the speaker on the earlier segment were incorrect uh, on this score, is that there's really no good baseline figures um, for crime rates and crime reporting rates, for instance, of undocumented uh, households or residents before the ID card. So it's very hard to compare the situation now to the time before because there really isn't good prior data. All of that said, uh, I'm confident that the cities of San Francisco, of Oakland, of New York, and uh, of others, now Hartford's, you know, on this path, that have decided to uh, invest uh, in these programs are doing so uh, because they recognize the, the value uh, in their local communities of providing a municipal identification card to all residents without regard for immigration status. So I, I think if it was not useful, I don't think we'd see these other cities investing in them. Along those lines, we've got a tweet from Brendan who says, crime is down in Hartford since adopting its immigration rights ordinance. I don't know that we can necessarily draw a direct line between that ordinance and the lowering of the crime rate in Hartford, but it is certainly a data point. I want to go to the phones again. Joel is calling from Manchester. Hi there, Joel. Go ahead. You're on where we live. How you doing? I just wanted to mention with the uh, illegal immigration, um, I lived out in San Diego County in California uh, and also in Virginia. And in San Diego County, I saw they come into residential remodeling. They work for $10 an hour and they take the trade over. You couldn't get a job over there for, you know, 10, 12 bucks an hour at the most. And that's in California. And then in Roanoke, they came into the sheetrocking and, and taping trade and they took that over. Um, so I think that, you know, it's nice to say, you know, everybody can stay and everything's great, but... They have, an, they have an econ a negative economic impact on people trying to make a living. Joel, thank you very much for the phone call. Ana Maria, do you have a, a response to what Joel had to say? Hello? Sorry. Hi. Yeah, Hi. Did, did, did you hear, did you hear Joel? <laughs> Making sure that I wasn't talking. Um, yeah, I think there is a, a, a kind of a large misconception that immigrants are coming here and taking our jobs when um, there's actually been numerous studies that suggest that uh, the wave of immigrants actually helps our economy, our economy because immigrants are um, creating new businesses and creating new jobs and paying taxes, and that has actually helped our economy and not drained our economy. Um, and, and Michael Wishney, I'm, I'm wondering if you might just pick up on this too. I mean, uh, Joel is someone who is in a very specific industry who says he's seen firsthand how job opportunities are, are lessened for uh, legal American citizens because of people who are here undocumented. What do you say to Joel? 
Well, uh, I, I haven't worked on the work sites where he's been. I can say that uh, Anna Maria is correct that the studies of sectors or geographic regions or periods of time um, conclusively demonstrate that the presence of low-wage immigrant workers uh, tends to raise the wages of uh, uh, legal immigrants and U.S. citizen workers. Um, and uh, moreover, one reason that the wages are lower is because of wage theft uh, and failures in the labor and employment laws that immigrants and unions, uh, organizations, and communities together have been pushing for. And I just to tie that back, um, you know, New Haven is in the news right now because of uh, various uh, fights over the mistreatment in the workplace of low-wage workers, uh, but New Haven has declined to adopt the kind of aggressive anti-wage theft program that many other cities have in themselves adopted, uh, which benefit not only low-wage immigrant workers, of course, but all workers, and by pushing the wages up at the lowest levels, do, uh, rise, do raise those of others. Uh, and I want to thank Joel for his phone call. Uh, Anna Maria, talk through what sort of access to social services undocumented immigrants in Connecticut have currently. Sure. Well, our agency, for example, um, you know, our mission is to really provide services, programs, and advocacy to uh, the Latino and the immigrant community in New Haven. And I think the city of New Haven has, uh, you know, our agency, we partner a lot with the city of New Haven to make sure that people have access to um, English as a second language classes, that they are able to access um, schools, that they have bilingual staff there that is able to communicate with them. Um, Actually, just this week, the city of New Haven became part of the Cities for Citizenship uh, Initiative, which is a national initiative that encourages cities to really invest in their cities and citizenship programs. And so, um, you know, I think that uh, not only the city of New Haven, but other cities have taken, you know, uh, municipal ID cards and passing policies that are going to allow people to access other kinds of services in the city. Um, So, yeah, we've made some tremendous strides, but we have a long way to go. In 2014, uh Michael, uh, of course, East Haven, Connecticut, settled a years-long civil rights lawsuit brought by immigrants who'd been harassed by the police department there. Um, Can you maybe talk through what the impact has been on that community? Because as we talk about sanctuary city laws across the state, I think one way to define sanctuary cities might, might well be in place in East Haven, a place that was in many ways forced to adopt some of these policies. Can, can you talk through where we are in East Haven right now? Yeah, I'm delighted you brought East Haven in. I just made a note to myself that if I had a final word, I wanted to say the words East Haven. Um, So thanks for that. So uh, I was uh, one of the lawyers on that lawsuit. Uh, My students uh, worked on that case. So I should disclose that right up front. But you're exactly correct that East Haven, a town uh, with a history of some members of its police department, persecuting, tormenting, and you know, violently profiling African-American and Latino residents and, and visitors. Um, uh, in its policies, in the face of uh, community mobilization, as well as the litigation you mentioned and other cases brought by the Department of Justice, has adopted the most forward-looking uh, policies in this area in the state. I mean, it's ironic that East Haven's policies regarding cooperation with immigration um, are more protective of immigrants in East Haven than the policies in New Haven, in Hartford, or the state law, the Trust Act, which was alluded to earlier. So it's a little ironic that East Haven, which for so long was kind of the poster child of violent racial profiling in the state and for a while in the nation, has lapped 
New Haven, Hartford, and, and the state. Um, and it's now up to those communities to, to catch up with the more um, uh, updated policies that East Haven has adopted. In terms of the effect, which was your question, again, unfortunately, they've only been in place for a little while, and I have not seen any data you know, one way or the other uh, as to the effects. I want to go to one more quick phone call before we have to break. Tim is in Hamden. Hello there, Tim. You're on where we live. Hi, good morning. Thank you for having me. Um, my question is a follow-up to um, some of the, the other questions and comments surrounding the data um, that comes out of the New Haven program specifically. And I'm curious to find out um, what success stories are available to the public um, that can, I guess, showcase the benefit of having um, an Elm City ID card, meaning, you know, if I'm putting myself in the shoes of an immigrant, um, is it almost going to hurt me and, you know, easily identify me as someone here um, who may have some immigration issues? And also, you know, I think sometimes we have, uh, we go around with the stigma of the immigrant with issues really coming from Latin America or, or Mexico, you know, Connecticut is, is heavy Afro-Caribbean. Um, and we obviously have Asian immigrants here as well. So what are some of the success stories outside of the municipality? I mean, can someone take this card and go down to New York City and conduct business and apply for a job? So I'm, I'm just curious about um, some of the public awareness efforts that have been made since this program has rolled out. Tim, it's a real good question. Thank you. And Ana Maria, do you have a, a thought for him? Yeah, well, well, the first thing is that I think that, you know, the Elm City ID card has uh, in no way identifies whether or not you have an immigration status. So we actually encourage anyone who's a resident of the city of New Haven to get the card. Uh, so it's not identifying in any way. I, I don't believe that you can use the Elm City ID card to get a job um, anywhere as a legal documentation or no, not only in Connecticut, but in any other state. But um, perhaps Mike has some information about that. But I do, um, you know, anecdotally talking to people in the community here at Junta, uh, I, I have seen a shift and change uh, in folks feeling like they can, whenever, if the police, you know, um, questions them at some point and ask for an identification, they can use that. If they go to a business that, um, that requires an identification for a transaction, they feel like they can use that. Um, so I, I've heard people feeling more safe. Um, and feeling more confident in saying, you know, I am a resident of New Haven, and the city of New Haven recognizes my my residence here. So, um, anecdotally, I think it has been a, a, a tremendous success. And one thing I think we've seen in just the last year, uh, Connecticut became one of 10 states, uh, along with uh, the District of Columbia and Puerto Rico, to allow undocumented immigrants to apply for driver's licenses. And, and Michael, very quickly, if you would, uh, we saw an awful lot of people who lined up, as a matter of fact, sort of jammed up the DMV, making sure that they were getting their driver's licenses. This is some actual real data that we saw. Uh, I think you must be reading my notepad, John, um, because <laughs> I was going to move to driver's licenses myself. Uh, yes, uh, I do think first that one consequence of uh, essentially the municipal experiment uh, of an ID program was to uh, confirm some of the arguments people were making about the utility of statewide identification, like most importantly a driver's license. And in fact, as 
Connecticut residents uh, are now eligible to obtain driver's licenses without regard to immigration status, there may be less demand for a, lo a municipal identification uh, for those who can access the driver's license, who can you know pass the other requirements. Um, but I think the lines you described, I mean, to me, those were reminiscent of the lines for the municipal ID card in New Haven uh, at a time when people said, there's been these raids, uh, what do you get for it? You don't get a job, you don't get immigration status, you pay your money and you get your picture on a laminated card. And yet, thousands of people lined up out the door around the block day after day the first uh, week that the New Haven card was available. And the same thing happened with the driver's license, where you saw a very similar replay of anti-immigrant folks who, who want to cling to our outdated uh, and inhumane and immoral laws um, fighting against that. And on the other side, you didn't really have ideologues. You just had practical people. You had you know state police officials, DMV officials saying, you know what, we got a job to do. We're trying to keep our roads safe. Mm. And we think that if we do eye tests and do road tests for people and they get insurance and they don't flee the scene of a fender bender for fear of being arrested and deported, our roads will actually be safer. Not to mention we'll get the fees from the license and the business from insurance uh, and the auto repair. So the, the data analysis that was done for that strongly suggested that there would be a modest economic boom in car purchases mm -hmm. and auto repair and insurance uh, in Connecticut. And I think we're seeing that. Michael Wishney from Yale Law School, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. And thank you to Ana Maria Rivera from the Junta for Progressive Action based in New Haven. Thank you. Thank you so much. When we come back, we're going to be talking with the mayor of Allentown, Pennsylvania, a city that's welcoming in Syrian refugees. That's coming up next, where we live. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. Coming up on Monday's show, overall access to health care has improved a lot since Obamacare insured millions of the previously uninsured, but there's still lots of barriers to health care. We'll talk about that on the next Where We Live. Uh, in September, a coalition of 18 mayors from cities across the country penned a letter to President Obama urging him to allow more Syrian refugees on top of the 10,000 Syrians he has said the U.S. will permit by 2017. One of those who signed on was Ed Pulowski, who's the mayor of Allentown, Pennsylvania. We heard him talking about this issue on NPR, and we wanted to bring him into our conversation today as we think about and talk about the Syrian refugee crisis. Uh, mayor, thank you so much for joining us here on Where We Live. My pleasure. First of all, first of all, maybe you can talk about why this issue is so important to you in Allentown, Pennsylvania. Well, we have the largest Syrian population per capita here in Allentown. Uh, we have about 5,000 Syrians uh, that had moved into the into the city of Allentown and the Allentown area uh, over the course of the last 30 or 40 years, uh, and so we have a very diverse and um, uh, very established Syrian population that exists here in the city, and it's it's something that's uh, near and dear to my heart because these folks have been uh, in, incredibly um, vital to the city. They've started small businesses. They've been a, a vital part of our community uh, for, for generations now. And uh, for us to turn our backs uh, on new immigrant families uh, who are experiencing horrible circumstances, I think, would, would be a, an atrocity. Since we first heard uh, about this on, on NPR and, and you talking about this issue, in Allentown, an awful lot has happened, and an awful lot more uh, people have tried to flee from that area. There has also been a national debate about the so-called vetting process for those fleeing Syria. Uh, two of our own uh, congressional delegation actually voted for uh, a bill that would tighten the vetting process for Syrians. How concerned are you about what 
uh, hoops people have to jump through, what we need to know about people who are coming from Syria before they are able to settle in some place like Allentown, Pennsylvania? Well, I think what people need to understand is that this process is probably the most uh, stringent uh, entry process that we have in this country. Uh, and they, people also need to understand that since this, the Refugee Act goes back to the 1980s, and so we've had over 3 million refugees that have come into this country uh, since that point from various countries, not just Syria, but from you know, um, Lebanon and, and numerous African countries and, and, and other countries that, that have had uh, horrible circumstances and horrible wars occur. So um, I think what people need to understand is that this process is extensive. I mean, it can last anywhere from 9 to 24 months. 24 months is about the average. Uh, they go through multiple checks from Health and Human Services to INS to Homeland Security to FBI. And many times these families go through those security checks multiple times uh, before they're even allowed to enter into this country. And you know, I have told many of my constituents that, that have asked me about this process uh, that if, if someone was really looking to come in to this country and cause harm uh, and perpetrate an act of terrorism, this would probably not be the way to enter the United States. Um, it is such a long and laborious process uh, to go through for a refugee uh, to, to get uh, themselves and their family here that it would be much easier to just get a work visa or uh, a travel visa to get into this country if you really wanted to cause harm in some way, shape, or form. Um, this would not be the process that I, I think a terrorist would take. So, you know, I think there's a lot of fear that's being propagated out there by, by uh, certain portions of the media, and that fear needs to stop because when you look at it logically and take the fear component away, uh, it's a it's an extensive process. It's a a lengthy process, and it's it's one that uh, in many in many ways is is very difficult for for families to even get through. So I I think the process speaks for itself. Uh, in a recent conversation about this issue, we had on the mayor of Danbury, Connecticut, Mark Bowton, and and he was talking about the, the need to extend a humanitarian hand to women and children who are fleeing this area. But he said he would stop short of wanting to welcome in uh, men of so-called fighting age, 18 to 55. He, he essentially said that that would be the greatest threat, and so that would be the, the biggest vetting process. Can you just talk about that? I mean, from the people that you've resettled in your area, the, the, the need perhaps to, to keep families together who are fleeing a terrible situation. I mean, think about think about that statement. I mean, that's ridiculous. That's absolutely ridiculous. When when else would we say that outside of this context? Yeah, we should break the family up because the father is not important in this picture. Uh, of course, no. We need to keep these families together. They've gone through horrific circumstances, and people forget this. You know, their homes, their families, their businesses, their their very lives have been utterly obliterated and destroyed. And for, for no act of their own. <laughs> and, and we as a, as a country have participated in this you know, we, through, in, through our intervention you know, acts. And so we, we need to, to at least, at the very least, you know, welcome these families, figure out a way to, 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 to vet them and vet them properly, but welcome them and give them an opportunity to start a new life. 
I, uh, that's what the refugee yeah. program is all about. I, I know that you said you, you've explained to some constituents who've been asking you questions about this. I, I should ask you, uh, Mayor, in just the last couple minutes that we have left, are you hearing different things from your constituents in Allentown about this issue following the attacks in Paris? No, you, listen, I, I have heard, you know, on both sides. Um, we've had a, a lot of, uh, a number of good-hearted people who have stepped forward. And we actually had an interfaith service uh, about a week and a half ago that was just tremendous. I mean, we, we had over 500 folks attend uh, from all different faiths and religions and and really show their support. At, at the same time, we we're, there's been people who have bought into to the, to the propaganda that's being put out there you know, by the right-wing media, and have, you know, are fearful. In fact, I was at an event not too long ago, um, and and an elderly woman came up to me, very sincere, and she said, Mayor, I'm terrified. And I said, well, what what are you terrified about? And, you know, she said, I can't sleep at night. I haven't slept in days. And I'm thinking, what's happening in this woman's neighborhood that she's so terrified? And she looked at me. She said, they're going to chop my head off. I said, who's going to chop your head off? He said, you know, those people that are coming. I said, ma'am, stop. I said, number one, stop watching Fox News. And she laughed at me, and she's like, how do you know I watch Fox News? I said, well, you know, I just just a hunch. <laughs> I said, number two, you know, it, the vetting process here is extensive. And I had to go through exactly what I just said about the vetting process and assure her that the government is doing everything that they possibly can to make sure that folks who are coming in this country are not going to, Come into her house at night and chop off her head, and she, you know, and, she, and I, you know, I calmed her down. But I saw the immense, you know, anxiety that was in her heart and in her eyes as a result of, you know, this this barrage of negative media that's being put out there. And so, yes, there, I, we're seeing it on both sides of the issue. But we have to remember, you know, we are the wealthiest country on the face of the planet. If we truly believe in our Judeo-Christian heritage that basically says we need to welcome a stranger among us because we were once strangers, then we need to, to act that out. Um, if we truly believe in the words, you know, that are on the Statue of Liberty, give me your tired and, you, you know, your poor and your, your huddled masses, then we should live that out. If not, hmm. you know, then we should pack that statue back up and send it back to friends. <laughs> so I think we're at a turning point here in this country. Well, at a turning point where yeah. we can where we can either you know it's rise the occasion or not we're going to rise the occasion here in Allentown. Ed Pulaski is the mayor of Allentown, Pennsylvania. Thank you so much, sir, for joining us for a few minutes here on the program. I do appreciate it. You're welcome. Thanks so much. Our program today was produced by Dan Schultz, along with Lydia Brown and Tucker Ives. Our technical producer is Kyone Wolf. Our digital editor is Heather Brandon. The executive producer of Where We Live is Katie Talarski. Thanks to interns Amanda Gallagher and Sarah Flaherty. Continue this conversation at wnpr.org slash where we live.